0: Uh, So, tonight you'll see uh, we're not uh, talking about Samson. We got two more Samson sermons. Uh, And if you've missed the last two weeks, um, you can read about Samson, Judges uh, chapter 13 to 16, and you'll feel great about yourself. Um, I promise you, Samson is a bigger moron than you. And um, the good news is that God used a bigger moron than you to accomplish his purposes. Um, So, we're going to take a break uh, from Samson, and um, we're going to talk about money tonight. But uh, I told you earlier that I needed to tell a little bit of the story. Um, how we got here. How did this group of people get in this room? Uh, we'll start a little over three years ago. Uh, I was uh, an assistant pastor at the main site, and um, we had this season of giving. And in that season of giving at the main site, I uh, was going to do three things. First thing I was going to do was kind of uh, do some, uh, build a new nursery and uh, finish the basement at the main facility. So there was const- some construction involved in this uh, season of giving. Uh, There's also paying down the debt. We had debt that was incurred by building the sanctuary that's currently there. we need to pay down some of that debt. And uh, as we were sitting around saying, All right, we have this season of giving, um, a couple people a lot smarter than me or Robert said, uh, Hey, uh, if we finish the building and we pay down our debt, we're just going to have a bigger problem. Because um, there are two full services, and we're still going to have two full services. So are you guys on board with having a third service? And everybody said, No, <laughs> we do not want a third service. And that's when uh, starting a new church came into view. And so when the new church came into view, uh, it got thrown into this season of giving we call it a capital campaign and uh, so for the first three years uh, That we've been here. We're in the th- we're in the fifth month of the third year So we're about two and a half out of the three years in uh, We could go if you guys didn't give a dime Uh, we were going to be paid for for three years, uh, which is really, really, really generous. Most of the time, uh, people in my shoes as a church planner, they have to go and raise uh, a few hundred thousand dollars uh, to get to the place where their church will be self-sustaining. But for us, we were given a ton of money uh, to to get us the first three years. Um, That's all really great news. Uh, And it's also really great news that we're being cut off. Uh, the gravy train is ending. Uh, we have seven more months of the gravy train. Uh, and then we will be responsible uh, for ourselves. And uh, if we are self-sustaining, um, then we get to be Downtown Presbyterian Church or something like that. Uh, we no longer will be Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church dash downtown. Um, so that's, that, that means we'll be led by leaders who are only in this room. Uh, and that means we'll be further integrated into the community. So all this is really great, uh, and that's why uh, we've chosen to do just a few, uh, a few sermons uh, this year on money, and uh, we're not going to do this over and over, over again, I promise. Uh, we want to do uh, other series that happen throughout the year, and, and we're doing this money thing by a few sermons here. Uh, we're publishing numbers, giving numbers in the Bulletin. We've never done that before, and um, our neighborhood groups, which most of you are in. If you're not, you can just let me know, and I'll help you out. But our neighborhood groups will be talking about this uh, issue of giving over the course of a weekend sometime this fall, or sometime this spring, your neighborhood group leader will be in touch. Uh, So that's how we're tackling these issues. Uh, So before we get into our text today, uh, let me pray. Uh, Father, uh, we need so much more uh, than something that's relevant, something that's clear, and even something that's biblical. What we need is for your Holy Spirit to breathe on your word, uh, to open our eyes to the glory of Jesus. So, Lord, would you do that even now? In Christ's name, amen. Um, here's the big question. Why do Christians give their money away? Why? I think it's a really important question, but as Americans, we usually ask practical questions when, when, in regards to money. We say, uh, how do I give? What does my money go to? Do I get a tax write-off? When do I give? Can I give electronically? Uh, These are practical questions, and Americans are practical. But I think the most important question when it comes to money is the why. Why do Christians give? Well, there's a strand uh, of American Christianity that believes that God grants health and wealth to those who have the right kind of faith. Uh, it's It's a Christianity of cause and effects. If you do X, then Y will be your reward. If you do X, your life will prosper. If you obey, you'll be guaranteed protection and blessing. In this whole movement, it's usually called the health-wealth gospel, this whole whole movement was started with a philosophical tradition back in the 1800s. It was called New Thought. And in New Thought, uh, the New Thought says that positive thoughts yield positive circumstances and negative thoughts yield negative circumstances. So what Christians just did is they adopted that philosophy, and they began to recite things like this. God is in me. God's ability is mine. God's strength is mine. God's health is mine. God's success is mine. I am a winner. I am a conqueror. In other words, prosperity follows these believers, and they are hashtag blessed. Uh, You can smell these leaders. You've seen these, you smell these leaders a mile away. They usually have uh, perfectly white teeth and perfectly quaffed hair. Uh, Meanwhile, my teeth are a little bit stained from coffee and I need a haircut. Uh, So I'm not a part of this strand. Um, And I I hope you aren't either. Um, But if this is your theology of money, you know what the motivation of forgiving is, don't you? Give so you'll be blessed. But here's what the historian Kate Bowler says. Uh, Kate Bowler, she says, uh, Blessed is a loaded term because it blurs the distinction between two very different categories, gift and reward. Blessed can be a term of pure gratitude when it's a gift, and it prays prayers like, Thank you, God, I could not have secured this for myself. But blessed, when it's a reward, prays prayers like this, Thank you, me, for being the kind of person who gets it right. It's a perfect word for an American society that says it believes the American dream is based on hard work and not luck. End quote. See, do you see how twisted this is to the gospel of grace, don't you? The gospel says we worship God because he has blessed us. Not we worship God So that he blesses us. That's why I have to disagree with my main man, Chance the Rapper. Chance the Rapper sings, praises go up, blessings come down. See, the gospel is just opposite. Blessings came down in Christ, so now my praises go up. So your theology of money is very, very important. The why question is way more important than the what, when, where, and how. So what's needed for us is to get beyond the pragmatics of giving to the heart of giving, to the why of giving. And that's what Paul does in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 15. Let's read it together. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia We urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Uh, so three points tonight, uh, three points in a poem, uh, the standard of giving, uh, verses 1 to 8, uh, the heart of giving, verse 9, and then some practical considerations that kind of flow out of verses uh, 10, fi- 10 through 15. So standard, uh, the heart, and the practices. Uh, so the first one, the standard uh, for giving. Uh, Paul in this letter to Saint Corinthians is really just a fundraising letter. <laughs> Uh, he's going uh, to all of his different churches. He's going to Philippi, he's going to Berea, and he's asking them to give to the Christians who are in Jerusalem. And the Christians in Jerusalem, we find out in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 to 4, that they are uh, experiencing a severe famine. We don't know where the famine comes from, we just know that they have a famine. And So what's Paul's strategy? Uh, how's he going to get them to give? What ta- tactics is he going to employ? Uh, He could show them pictures of kids dying of lack of nutrition, couldn't he? He could tell heart-wrenching stories about these hungry Jews. He could go to the Corinthians and affirm their supreme compassion and call them to act on it. He could get them really fired up with an inspirational vision. But these aren't his tactics. The collection is so much more than about simple charity for Paul. You know, simple charity. uh, Here's the need, meet the need. Paul has a a, a really deep purpose that he wants accomplished for the Corinthians. He wants their sanctification. He wants them to become more like Jesus in their lives when it comes to money. So Paul holds up a strategy, or uh, Paul's strategy is to hold up an example for them. And the example is the Macedonian church. Macedonia is like a state, and within that state, Uh, There are three cities that we read about throughout the New Testament. There's Berea, there's Philippi, and there's Thessalonica. And they are the models for what the Corinthians should look like. The Macedonians, uh, as Paul tells us, they've really taken on four characteristics in their giving that Paul wants them to emulate. Their giving is joyful, sacrificial, voluntary, and God-centered. I'll do that again. Joyful, sacrificial, voluntary, and God-centered. You see the joyful part right there in verse 2. He says an abundance of joy. When you see that word abundance, it's really saying joy taken to like the fifth power. He's talking about exponential joy. That's what they have in giving their money away. But giving and joy, is that what you put together in your life? It isn't, at least for me, my giving is marked more by dislike than delight. Our giving is usually more like misery than pleasure, sorrow than satisfaction, and in general, giving our money away uh, goes—giving our money away and, and joy go together like wet grocery bags, like overcrowded trains, like spilling coffee on yourselves, like bad haircuts. I stole all this from the DirecTV commercial, by the way. So when he starts saying abundance of joy in their giving, it's got to get the Corinthians' attention. Their ears perk up. But then the next phrase in verse 2 makes their mouths drop. It says that they had abundance of joy in their giving. You see that next phrase? Out of their extreme poverty. So they're giving sacrificial. So here with the, the, the Church of Macedonia, you've got poor people giving to poor people. You've got poor Gentiles giving to Poor Jews. And even though joyful and giving don't go together very often, you probably think that joyful and giving would be for the rich. But these folks are poor. So what accounts for this? How can you have joyful, sacrificial giving? How can poor people give to poor people with joy? What's well, grace. Only grace can account for this. And that's what leads to the third point, that they volunteer for this. They're eager about it. Uh, they give without being manipulated or coerced. In fact, Paul doesn't even really ask for money. And look at the end of verse 3. As we go into verse 4, it says, They gave out of their free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Look at verse 8. Jump down to verse 8. It says, um, Paul says, I say this, all, verses 1 to 7. I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So you see what he's doing, don't you? He's tempting them to give. Paul doesn't want them to give because they're asked. And nowhere in any of Paul's letters does he tell his churches how much to give. So his attempts to get them to give are not commands, they're advice. If they're commands, then their giving would not be willing or eager but what makes this collection a matter of grace is that the Corinthians are free to participate or not as they wish. But if Paul would have made the command, then the giving would have been obligatory. But it wasn't that. So have you ever heard of anyone begging to give their money away? When you think about begging and money, it's usually you're talking about people are begging to get money. These people are begging to give money. Think about your own life. Don't you tend to play defense with your giving as opposed to offense? See, playing defense with your giving is when you give because someone asks you to give. Playing offense with your giving is going to people and telling them that you're going to give it to them. So their giving was voluntary. Lastly, their giving was God-centered. Look at verse 5. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. See, this one's really foundational. The Macedonians were able to give with joy, to give with sacrifice, and to give voluntarily because they had first given themselves to God. Same goes for us. Usually when we think about giving, what do we go straight to? We go to our budget. We go to our account balances and see what we can afford to give. But perhaps the best place to go isn't your banking app. Maybe it's not your spreadsheet, but the best place to go is prayer. Maybe we should pray something like Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 in regards to our money and our giving. We say, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of the everlasting. See, in that prayer, you're asking God to contradict you in the way you view your money. You're committing yourself first to him, not to principles. You're asking him to expose something in you that you were previously unaware of. And this is really tough work. But this is what the Macedonians did. They gave themselves first to the Lord. Now, you might hear these first four things, you know, giving joyfully, giving sacrificially, giving voluntarily and giving, uh, and and being God-centered in your giving. You might say, thanks, Marsh, feeling pretty crummy, um, giving, it really is more like misery than delight for me. Uh, when I think about sacrificial, I'd rather just give my loose change. I don't want to commit, commit, commit myself first to the Lord. that prayer from Psalm 139 sounds really scary for me. I'm out. You might be feeling guilty, but you're not feeling liberated. That's why Paul writes verse 9. You see it? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, this is the heart of gospel giving. The Macedonians got the idea of joyful, sacrificial, voluntary, and God-centered giving. They got it from Jesus. See, Hebrews 12 said that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. That Jesus sacrificed the riches of heaven to be relatively poor in his incarnation. He did this voluntarily out of his good pleasure, and he committed himself first to the Lord as he cried out on the cross. Luke 24, verse 39 Into your hands I commit my spirit. See, the Macedonians, they didn't read 12 steps of gospel giving. And the Corinthians don't need to read that book either. What they need and what we need is the experience of grace. See, verse 9, the impetus of that is not go and do what Christ did. Did he set an example for us? Absolutely, but he did so much more than that. He gave us an experience that, overpower, that empowers our giving. This experience of God's grace is something like this. It says, I'm spiritually poor, no matter how much or how little that I've got in the bank. I'm so poor that God had to die for me in order to give me his riches. And the riches are great. The riches are being adopted into his family. is putting on the righteousness of Jesus instead of wearing the rags of my sin. I get to receive eternal life. I get to receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. And when you see that those are the riches of Christ and that your poverty because of your sin exists not just for mankind, not just for the church, but for you, then you're experiencing God's grace. You've come to the place where you're personally aware of your poverty and you're personally aware of the riches of Jesus. And if you've had this experience, then you have extraordinary power to be generous. See, imagine uh, if you were dying. This is good, you know, um, Imagine you were dying, and you were aware that you're dying, and the doctor comes in, and he says, I've got good news, and I've got bad news. The good news uh, is that the FDA has just approved the drug that you need that guarantees your cure. But here's the bad news. The bad news is it's very, very, very expensive. You're going to give up your house, your 401k, your stock, your electronics, your car, your wardrobe, everything. So you probably won't be very interested uh, in this, but... You can give me your final answer tomorrow. Then he walks out the room. You would say, hold up, doc. I don't need to wait till tomorrow. I can tell you today, I don't care about my house. I don't care about my riches. I don't care about my car. They don't mean anything to me if I'm dead. Being alive is more precious to me than anything that I have. See, that's Jesus for you. When you have Jesus everything else becomes expendable because He's just that precious to you. Uh, Robert Murray McShane uh, was this famous Scottish minister way back in the 1800s. uh, And he preached a sermon on money. I ran across it this week. And in his sermon, he creates a mock conversation between a, a minister and a congregant. Here's how it goes. Here's the minister. Do- this is the minister. This is the congregant. Uh, minister, uh, you must be like Jesus in your giving. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. Congregant. Objection. My money is my own. Minister. Answer. Christ might have said, My blood is my own. My life is my own. Then where should we be? Objection. The poor are undeserving. Answer. Christ might have said, they are wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these? I will only give my life to good angels. But no, he left the 99 and he came after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection. The money won't be used as I think it should be. Answer. Christ might have said the same to you with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under his feet that most would despise it, and that many would make it an excuse to sin even more, yet he gave his own blood. Oh, my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, to give much, give often, give freely to the vile, the poor, the thankless, and the undeserving. End quote. You see what the minister is doing here, don't you? He's saying that giving becomes a reflex, a natural response to the reception of the grace of the gospel. Grace wells up in us, so that our giving can overflow from us. See, that's the heart of giving. It's not a vision. It's not a mere charity. It's the gospel that motivates us. But Paul lists a lot, to a lot of practices. In fact, I had to start cutting practices, and so I've got two. I'm really talking to two different groups of people. So you you really just get one of these, um, depending who you are. Uh, The first one, giving is not just for rich people. The Macedonians proved this to be true, right? They gave out of their poverty. That means that all Christians are on the hook for giving. See, I think many of us, we approach giving like we approach going out to eat with our parents. You know, uh, you know how this goes, don't you? You go out to eat with your parents and you expect them to pick up the tab. Well, when it comes to giving uh, in the church, when it comes to giving the, to the poor in our city, when it comes to giving to the needy in our church, we think the people with more money than me will take care of it. But that's just not true. See, I, I know a lot of you are just getting uh, started in this thing called adulting. And things seem really tight. But what if giving, uh, from your first taste of adulting to the last taste of your adulting, what what if giving was at the very center of it? What if you didn't give the leftovers, but you built your consumption around your giving instead of your giving around your consumption? I think that's what the Macedonians give. The only reason they were able to give so much is because they spent so little on themselves. The second thing, um, so giving isn't just for rich people. Uh, Rich people are to be extra generous. Uh, Corinth uh, was uh, probably the richest of all the churches that Paul dealt with. Uh, The the, the city of Corinth, the economy was booming because it was a port city going from Rome uh, to modern-day Turkey or to modern-day Middle East, you had to go through Corinth. So Paul is trying to show that a huge part of their discipleship as wealthy Christians is going to involve their giving. And he wants them to know that money is like fire. See, inside the fireplace, fire is a really good thing. It's a constructive thing. Outside the fireplace, the fire is a bad thing. It's a destructive thing. So money is very powerful. It can accomplish all kinds of good, but it can also rot your soul if you hold on to it. And the test of genuine faith is your willingness to give and volunteer to live below your means, to not spend needlessly on yourself so that you can give your money away. And for all of us, those who have just started adulting, those of us who have a few years under our belt, My dream for our church when it comes to money is not that we would meet budget. My dream is not that we would have way more giving than our budget so that we can start thinking about a building. My dream is that all of us, whether you make $20,000 a year or $200,000 a year, that you will be so moved by the grace of Jesus that you would give your money away. And I say this because I want you to be happy. In verse 10, uh, Paul says that giving their, if the Corinthians give their money away, that it's going to benefit them, the givers. See, of course their giving is going to benefit Jerusalem, but it's going to benefit them too. So give your money away and lives will be touched, no doubt about it. But don't forget that your heart might be the heart that is most affected by your giving. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you um, uh, would you do? Well, I, I pray that um, we would see Your ways as better than our ways, uh, Lord. That we would, um, Lord, that we would have the dissatisfaction with ourselves. We'd have the courage to pray prayers like Psalm one thirty nine verses twenty three and twenty four. That we would ask You to search us and know us, and Lord. I pray that we would be a generous church, uh, Lord. That uh, Lord, that for the, year, the years and years to come. Uh, That this might be the way that we are most different than the non-Christians in our city. As that we are cheerful and voluntary and sacrificial and centered on you when it comes to our giving. Make us these kind of people, we pray. Amen.